This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We we were a little, I would say, grimly determined on last week's show, so we're going to try and start out, at least start out today's program on a little bit of a lighter footing. And what better way to do that than when our perennial favorite, the good, the bad, and the ugly. More often than not, we take these selections from The Week magazine. And when you know it, I have a backlog to work with today, so let's, let's do several iterations of the good and the bad and the ugly. We would start out by noting it was a good week recently for the proletariat. And wouldn't you know it, this item comes to us from UC Davis. I'm not sure exactly what day this took place, but... Sometime last month, evidently, students at UC Davis voted to change their college mascot from what is described as an elitist horse, it's described as more inclusive cow. The old mascot, Gunrock, the Mustang, was named for a 1930s racehorse. I must confess that despite a 50-year affiliation with UCD, I never really thought of that logo, that, that, that icon of the racehorse as truly representing the mascot of the university. I went to quite a few football games and sports events for entertainment uh, when I was a student, and I don't remember a horse mascot. Maybe, maybe my memory's faulty on this, but I just don't remember one. And by that, I mean a real four-legged animal or, you know, a guy in a furry suit. Anyway, evidently Gunrock got under the skin of, of some students. Student activist Mick Hashimoto came forward to say that Gunrock, I, I guess because he's a Mustang, a, I don't know, I don't, I don't know the reasoning. He just says it makes him a symbol of the old elite. And I don't know who the old elite are. Neither do I understand Mr. Hashimoto's further statements that UC Davis students are hardworking people and they will better resonate with Aggie the Cow. And you can bet that we here at Radio Parallax are going to monitor this in the future to see how well the student body is resonating with Aggie the Cow. In this, we expect to seek assistance from our our good friend and collaborator at UCD, Dr. Andy Jones. If anyone is aware of how well the student body is resonating with Aggie the Cow, we feel we can count on Dr. Andy. It was, on the other hand, a bad week. We would consider it, at least, a bad week for technological advancement with the news that a group of students at Johns Hopkins Whiting School of Engineering have announced the invention of, yes, edible adhesive tape designed to hold together messy tacos, burritos, and wraps. Why would this be bad? Well, you know... I guess for eaters of tacos, burritos, and wraps, this could only be good news. 
But personally, I'd have been happier if the good people at John Hopkins Whiting School of Engineering had found a better way to say carbon sequester. But that's just me. I do expect a full report from Mr. McMillan in the future on how he managed to wrangle his messy burrito with edible adhesive tape. And a few weeks back, it was an ugly week for the Republican Party with the news that a man in jail for allegedly murdering his cancer-stricken wife nevertheless qualified in a GOP primary for a town board seat in Clinton, Indiana. Andrew Wilhoyt received 60 votes in a three-person race for three slots in a mostly Republican district. The 40-year-old would be disqualified if convicted of murder. Police say he's admitted smashing his wife's head with a flower pot, then dumping her body over a bridge. And evidently, these days, the, the GOP does not consider that as something that would disqualify you for holding office. And for this item, we need some appropriate music, Mr. McMillan. Yes, it was a good week. I don't know, some week last month. For Queen Elizabeth II, after the British royal became the third longest reigning monarch in world history, the 96-year-old queen, who has ruled for more than 70 years, will soon move into the number two spot behind only King Louis XIV of France, who ruled 72 years. And no, I'm sorry, we don't know who the number two person she's liable to move ahead of is. We should, but we don't. And it was surely a bad week one day last month for campaign finance reform with the news that Representative Tony Cardenas, a Democrat from California, has used campaign funds to pay his wife's business $424,000 over the past eight years. That's according to the Daily Beast. His campaign pays his wellness facilitator wife, Norma, $4,400 a month as a consultant. She claims expertise in hypnotherapy, life coaching, and primordial sound mediation. This is kind of funny because I've been paying Mr. Merlin for many years for his primordial sound mediation. And you've always gotten your money's worth. But as far as I know, we did not give the idea to Representative Tony Cardenas. And finally, it was an ugly week, a really ugly week, we would add, for Christian universalism with the news that Greg Locke, a controversial Christian pastor, who is pastor of a tax-exempt church, and by the way, to retain tax-exempt status, you're required to not be involved in politics, nevertheless told his followers that Democratic voters are demons. Also, they are not welcome in his congregation. By the way, Pastor Locke was on the steps of the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th insurrection, a day after he spoke at a pro-Trump rally, where he reportedly delivered one of the clearest and most violent prayers of the day. And I no, I've, I've never heard... I've never heard the juxtaposition of the words violent and prayers before. The Washington Post notes that the pastor blessed members of the right-wing Proud Boys from the pulpit and relied on its members to provide, quote, security, unquote. And, you know, I probably shouldn't quote this knucklehead, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so out there that I feel compelled to do so. 
said the pastor, strutting about the stage, microphone in hand, if you vote Democrat, I don't even want you around this church. You can get out. You can get out, you demon. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. I don't care how mad that makes you. You can get as PO'd as you want to. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. You cannot be a Democrat and a Christian. You cannot. Somebody say amen. The rest of you, get out. Well, we have a response to that. All right, we're searching for good news. We're, we're always searching for good news on this program, sometimes finding it. Here's something we wouldn't consider to be good news. The Economist notes that shareholders have questions for management these days, and lots of them, on just about every controversial subject. Companies have always had to answer to their shareholders, but the activity from issue-minded investors this last proxy season has been unprecedented. Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson had to vote on resolutions seeking to widen access to COVID-19 vaccines, while Amazon is facing a vote on a proposal for an audit on its policies on racial equity. Legendary activist Carl Icahn has even filed proposals at McDonald's and Kroger in a quest to end the confinement of pregnant pigs. We think this is a good thing. The Economist notes the most contentious issue, by far, is global warming. Average support for climate proposals exceeded 50% last year, in part because of how the nature of proxy battles has changed. Three of the nation's biggest asset managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, now own 22% of the average S&P 500 company. Holy mackerel. And they aren't shy about throwing their weight around, notes the magazine. Bloomberg notes that many investors were emboldened by the success at ExxonMobil last year of an activist hedge fund engine number one, the fund's victory in getting shareholders to elect three Exxon directors, quote, on a platform to make the energy behemoth more climate-friendly, unquote, was a watershed moment for the environmental, social, and governance movements. So good. Something else this correspondent has to think of as good comes from an article in The New Yorker, May 23rd issue, authored by Idris Kaloun, titled The War on Economics. It's kind of a book review, actually, about a progressive case being made against the dismal science of economics. To excerpt from the piece, where leaders once turned to sages and Pauls for wisdom, they now turn to the Guild of Economists. The most powerful states in the world are accustomed to outsourcing the management of their crucial macroeconomic decisions to committees of central bankers. Nowadays, no arena of public policy is untouched by economic guidance, solicited or unsolicited. Economists influence the way that children are cared for and schooled, the way that citizens are housed, treated in hospitals, and policed, the way that countries regulate industry and manage climate change. Public policy is now conducted in the language of budgets, cost-benefit studies, regulatory impact analyses, and mathematical models of dazzling beauty and complexity. Yet, we're not close to consensus on central questions of economic statecraft. Can the cycle of booms, bubbles, and busts be moderated? How much money can a welfare state redistribute to the poor without encouraging dependency? Economists, for all their hardcore mathematizing, still disagree with one another on basic issues. Which raises a question. 
Was it a mistake to entrust them with public policy in the first place? Well, we think that's an easy question to answer. Yes! Some years ago in this program, I put forth the position that if, that if I rule the world, and, and, and thank God I don't, but if I did, one of my first acts would be to round up the economists. It, it pains me to admit this slightly, but I would follow the lead of Chairman Mao Zedong. Mao, when he felt that his underlings were getting a little bit contentious and rowdy and out of line, would round them all up, send them off to re-education camps and have them wait on tables, which he did with Deng Xiaoping. That worked out pretty well for China. Deng Xiaoping came back from waiting on tables and doing menial work to basically creating modern China. I wouldn't expect to do as well if I ran the world, but I might give it a shot. Noted this piece. In The Economist, back in 1934, Franklin Roosevelt came away from a meeting with John Maynard Keynes, the most important British economist of the 20th century, baffled and appalled by his, quote, whole rigmarole of figures, unquote. Economists were once relegated to the basement, inglorious actuaries to the lawyers on top, but they've steadily gained in prominence, influence, and office space. Since 1946, the president has retained a Council on Economic Advisors. Last year, Joe Biden elevated the chair of that council to the White House cabinet. Noted Idris Kaloun, there exists no comparable august advisory body of anthropologists, political scientists, or sociologists. The piece says the dominance of economic thought has scuttled ambitious policymaking. Why, asks the author, did the Obama administration not produce or even seek more fundamental change? Why did it remain committed to an incrementalist, modestly ambitious vision of government, even as the country faced unprecedented challenges? The answer, she says, is the new technocrats fixed on incentives and choice undermine some of the Democrats' most effective language of universalism, rights, and equality. Under their malign sway, a cost-benefit analysis became codified in government bureaus and standards of jurisprudence. Previously bold Democrats reduced their dreams for betterment to feeble ideas that things will just get better. I gotta admit, this article does make me wonder. A little bit lower down, it says, antitrust enforcement got narrowed to businesses that violated the consumer welfare standard. The achievement of Robert Bork and members of the Law and Economics School fostered at the University of Chicago. Transportation markets for flights, freight, and railroads were deregulated. The Environmental Protection Agency moved away from regulating pollution through inflexible strict limits, adopting instead market-inspired emissions trading programs. Public housing was phased out in favor of rental vouchers. Anti-poverty policy was reformulated to respond to worries about moral hazard and dependency. And health care never got the overhaul that it needed. Rather than refashioning it into a single-payer system like the British National Health Service, Congress has only built annexes for a great Rube Goldberg machine formed of interlocking government subsidies, private insurance, and opaque hospital pricing. Again and again, hapless progressives have been overrun by brigades of economists armed with slide rules. By the way, the book that's being reviewed in this article in The Economist was Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy by Elizabeth Pop Berman, a sociologist at the University of Michigan. I am impressed by a few paragraphs in the middle of the piece, which I think I will read. 
Berman is at her best as an archaeologist of ideas, digging through archives to excavate the origins of the economic style of reasoning and its takeover of federal policymaking. In the waning days of the Second World War, American military leaders, intent on preserving the impressive statistical and logistics machine they had built to win the war, created an organization that would eventually become the Rand Corporation, a central figure in Berman's account. The group, which prided itself on empirical, nonpartisan, independent analysis, quickly rose in stature. A big boost came from the Kennedy administration with its legendary appetite for experts, especially of the Harvardian variety. And when John F. Kennedy's defense secretary, Robert McNamara, surrounded himself with a coterie of whiz kids, many were supplied by Rand. McNamara embarked on a grand scheme to bring scientific management to government business, the planning, programming, and budgeting system. I think I'll jump out of this piece into an item I've been sitting on for, I don't know, a year and a half. An article titled The Dictatorship of Data by a man named Kenneth Kukier. This is worth a few paragraphs. Big data is poised to transform society, from how we diagnose illness to how we educate children, even making it possible for a car to drive itself. Information is emerging as a new economic input, a vital resource. Companies, governments, and even individuals will be measuring and optimizing everything possible. But there's a dark side. Big data erodes privacy. And when it is used to make predictions about what we're likely to do but haven't yet done, it threatens freedom as well. Yet, big data also exacerbates a very old problem, relying on the numbers when they're far more fallible than we think. Nothing underscores the consequences of data analysis gone awry than the story of Robert McNamara. McNamara was a numbers guy. Appointed U.S. Defense Secretary when tensions in Vietnam rose in the 60s, he insisted on getting data on everything he could. Only by applying statistical rigor, he believed, could decision makers understand a complex situation and make the right choices. The world, in his view, was a mass of unruly information that, if delineated, denoted, demarcated, and quantified, could be tamed by human hand and fall under human will. McNamara sought truth, and that truth could be found in data. Among the numbers that came back to him was the body count. And if you're of a certain age, you remember the TV reports and the nightly news of what the body count was in Vietnam. Inevitably, there would be a number of Americans who had died, call it X. There would be a number presented of the number of South Vietnamese forces, that is, that had died, which inevitably was a number five to ten times larger, which would be followed by the number of deaths of the North Vietnamese slash Viet Cong, which inevitably was, I'm going to say, 40 to 80 times larger. It was not a good metric. Noted the article in 1977, two years after the last helicopter lifted off the rooftop of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, a retired Army general, Douglas Kennard, published a landmark survey called The War Managers that revealed the quagmire of quantification. A mere 2% of America's generals considered the body count a valid way to measure progress. Wrote one general in his comments, a fake, totally worthless. Another wrote, often blatant lies said a third, they were grossly exaggerated by many units primarily because of the incredible interest shown by people like McNamara. I gotta say, as a kid watching those numbers up on the screen, that's what I thought was going on. 
Notice the piece. The use, abuse, and misuse of data by the U.S. military during the Vietnam War is a troubling lesson about the limitations of information as the world hurls toward the big data era. The underlying data can be of poor quality. It can be biased. It can be misanalyzed or used misleadingly. And even more damning, data can fail to capture what it purports to quantify. Anyway, the piece notes we are more susceptible than we may think to this dictatorship of data, that is, to letting the, gov- the data govern us in ways that may do as much harm as good. What are the stats on that? Well, I think we're still gathering them. But, you know, we do have to point out in fairness that although it's possible to be misled by big data, it's also possibly misled by small data and even middle-sized data. It's a royal pain in the rear to go through life and try to figure out what data you can actually rely upon. I was watching a documentary recently based upon the, um, the work of Tversky and Kahneman. We've talked about these guys in the program before. Michael Lewis was quite intrigued by the two of them. I got quite a laugh out of, of Lewis's reportage that there was kind of an intelligence test that, that built up around Amos Tversky, which was that the less time it took for you to realize when you were talking to Tversky that he was way smarter than you, <laughs> was itself a kind of IQ test. But their research into how we make decisions is fascinating. Um, we live in a world where it's, 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 it's hard to render judgments on things, and we're not always particularly logical about it. The documentary pointed out how this is just anathema to economists, such as the late, great Milton Friedman, who put forth the idea that, you know, we're all logical creatures making logical decisions all the time. And, and folks, it just isn't so. And one thing that never ceases to amaze me when it comes to decision-making is how swayed we are, oftentimes, by wishful thinking. Right now, Elon Musk is benefiting from the fact that, supposedly, his Starlink satellites have kept uh, things going in Ukraine that people are able to maintain uh, their internet connections courtesy of these satellites as the infrastructure has been, you know, given a whack by Russian invading forces. Noted Foreign Policy magazine, there are now more than 10,000 Starlink terminals in war-torn Ukraine, and they're receiving high-speed broadband internet beamed down from low-orbit satellites from Elon Musk's SpaceX. The terminals have received rave reviews for being resilient and adaptable, keeping Ukraine's military, hospitals, schools, and municipal services connected with high-speed internet. Now, we, of course, have mocked high-speed internet on this program in the past because, well, we didn't think it was that important that people, you know, say in the Central African Republic can quickly download a copy of Dude, Where's My Car? off the internet. But this goes to show that we were being a little short-sighted. But while these Starlink satellites have proved themselves to be a boon to the people in war-torn Ukraine, we just cannot get behind the idea that Elon Musk is entitled to put 42,000 satellites into orbit. I think of this especially after going out to look at the, the possible meteor shower a few days ago, seeing a couple of satellites, including the International Space Station, and realizing that if we have 40,000 things in orbit, it's going to get really ugly and really messy. And the night sky, the heritage of that night sky that humanity's enjoyed forever is just going to be taken over by Elon. 
So the basic analysis that Starlink satellites are going to be a good thing, we think, is flawed reasoning. There'll be good aspects to it, but there will be very bad aspects to it. A lot of people are looking at Ukraine right now and noting that Russia is experiencing a brain drain. The AP took a look at it and said that according to a tech and industry trade group, between 50 and 70,000 computer specialists have bolted the country since the February invasion of Ukraine. This is reportedly spooked by sudden frost in the business and political climate, which has spurred a much larger exodus of skilled workers from Russia. Reportedly, a European tech ventures capital firm, Untitled Ventures, recently chartered two flights to Armenia carrying 300 tech workers from Russia. Well, that could be a bad thing for Russia and, and a good thing for the rest of us. Although I have to wonder whether, you know, putting hundreds of potential hackers in <laughs> Western states is going to turn out well for everybody, but uh, I don't know. But I'm holding a clutch of wishful thinking items in my left hand at the moment. They date back to January of last year, when in the wake of the failed putsch of Trump forces to overthrow the government of the United States, the Republican Party looked as though it was to some degree turning its back on Donald Trump. After all, Mitch McConnell blamed the whole incident on Donald Trump, and it looked as though, you know, they were having a parting of ways. But here we are, a year and a half later, taking a look at various elections across the country and trying to assess the power that Donald Trump retains over the Republican Party. And although a lot of wishful thinkers are saying, well, you know, Trump, Trump's people lost a lot of races. He must be, you know, he must be on the wane as an influencer, but he's also winning a few races. All I think we're going to say today is that the GOP's attempted coup to overthrow the government of the United States is very much not over. And you know, when, when Donald Trump's good pal, Vladimir Putin, launched this war on a neighboring Ukraine, at first, I was somewhat susceptible to the argument that, well, the Russians had been double-crossed by Western powers, the U.S. in particular, when back in the Gorbachev era, we promised that we wouldn't extend NATO up to uh, Russia's door. Well, at least not in, in, the, in, in the case of Ukraine. I mean, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, I think, were breaking down doors to join NATO. And when the argument was made by people in the U.S. that, well, if Ukraine wanted to join NATO, you know, we, we, might, we might consider it. On the one hand, that would be certain to enrage Russia and cause trouble. On the other hand, the idea that Ukraine might want to seek protection from Russia looks like a pretty reasonable assessment at this point. I'm somewhat shocked to note that Finland and Sweden now wish to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Sweden has been unaligned for two centuries, and it wants to join NATO. You kind of have to think they're looking to the east, looking at what Putin's doing and saying, well, you know, maybe being neutral is not so good right now. Now, one thing we continue to, 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 to wonder about is why it is Merrick Garland the Justice Department of the federal government, and various other legal jurisdictions around the country, like New York and Georgia, are not moving against Donald Trump for his illegal activities. 
So we think it's time that we again put the question to some people in the Democratic Party. A couple weeks back, we spoke to Representative Red Pullett, who is a Democrat from Rhode Island. Representative Pullett has now been named the chairman of the Select Committee on Possible Electoral and or Financial Irregularities that we might want to look into one of these days. Thank you for speaking with us, Mr. Representative. Can, can you confirm for us that the Select Committee will be subpoenaing witnesses? Well, uh, then you, can you at least confirm that Donald Trump is under investigation? All right, let's, let's try a really simple question. If laws have been broken, is anyone likely to be arrested and tried? Well, in all honesty, sir, your answers are not inspiring confidence. Well, thank you, Representative Red Pullett, Democrat from Rhode Island. We hope you can bring you on again. We really should take a short break. Let's do that. When we come back, we're going to talk with our old friend Dan Bacher about subjects near and dear to him, water and fish. And you know, those two things do tend to go together. This is Radio Parallax. Stick around.